And so the Lord says, These people say they are mine. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And their worship of me is nothing but man-made rules learned by rote. Because of this, I will once again astound these hypocrites with amazing wonders. The wisdom of the wise will pass away, and the intelligence of the intelligent will disappear. What sorrow awaits those who try to hide their plans from the Lord, who do their evil deeds in the dark? The Lord can't see, as they say. He doesn't know what's going on. How foolish can you be? He is the potter, and he is certainly greater than you, the clay. Should the created thing say of the one who made it, he didn't make me? Does a jar ever say, the potter who made me is stupid? Soon, and it will not be very long, the forests of Lebanon will become a fertile field, and the fertile field will yield bountiful crops. In that day, the deaf will hear words read from a book, and the blind will see through the gloom and darkness. The humble will be filled with fresh joy from the Lord. The poor will rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. The scoffer will be gone. The arrogant will disappear. And those who plot evil will be killed. Those who convict the innocent by their false testimony will disappear. A similar fate awaits those who use trickery to pervert justice and who tell lies to destroy the innocent. That is why the Lord who redeemed Abraham says to the people of Israel, my people will no longer be ashamed or turn pale with fear. For when they see their many children and all the blessings I have given them, they will recognize the holiness of the Holy One of Jacob. They will stand in awe of the God of Israel. Then the wayward will gain understanding, and the complainers will accept instruction. Thanks, Al. Well, it's good to be back. You guys know I've been off for a few weeks, and that was great. I feel refreshed and excited. But also, it's good to be back in the Gospel of Mark. Taking a long break from the Gospel of Mark, you guys all thought we had forgotten about it. You thought somehow I'd moved on. But oh no, we've come back. We want to actually get through the Gospel of Mark. We might take some more breaks yet before we're completely done. I don't want you guys to, you know, fall asleep and get bored or anything. So... How many remember, when, when were we last in the Gospel of Mark? Anybody remember? Yeah, a long time. Exactly. It was before Easter, believe it or not. So here we are, uh, launching back into the Gospel of Mark, picking it up, and continuing to go. Now, we so far, uh, through the Gospel of Mark, we tried to organize our, our times together around two main <coughs> questions. And I think, actually, the first half of Mark, you can kind of take these two questions, and they can be the two questions that kind of guide your reading and your thinking in the Gospel of Mark. The two questions are, who is this guy? And, can we trust him? Who is Jesus? And can we trust him? And each one of the stories and, and, and Mark is great for these tightly packed episodes where he's, he's showing us and kind of unfolding for us through these dramatic uh, events a little bit more about who this Jesus is. And in each one of the stories, uh, the people in the uh, event have to grapple with the question, am I going to trust this guy? But we as the readers have to ask that too as we see the identity of Jesus unfold. And one of the things that we've noticed through Mark, just kind of summarizing, if you're kind of new to things, that, that's okay. Just to summarize, what we've noticed through these first opening chapters of Mark is that Mark is presenting Jesus as a new king. 
and that he's declaring, you know, this kingdom has come. And he's trying to show people what this kingdom of God looks like. And so Mark, from the very beginning, right in chapter 1, he's showing that Jesus is this new king. And he's a different kind of king than any other king that the world has ever known. He's a good king. He's a king that can be trusted. We can trust him with our lives. And he shows that by demonstrating how he has compassion on those who are broken. And he heals them. In fact, he'll even go against religious authorities. He'll, he'll go against what was acceptable in that day in order to heal people. That he begins to walk into people's lives and offer them the very thing they need, like forgiveness of sins. That he's able to go to people who are so bound up and bring them true freedom. And that in the mix, he begins to teach people about what it means to be in this new kingdom of God. What it means to be receptive to God doing something completely new. And and we saw over and over again through this how the religious leaders in particular were very upset with Jesus. They they didn't like what he was doing. They didn't like what he was saying. You know, from, from his audacious claim to forgive sins, I mean, can you imagine it? Right through to the people he decided he'd hang around with. They were not happy with this Jesus character. And so they would confront him. And they would, they would, they would say things about him. And, and right early on, they begin to plot his demise, right? Because they're so upset with the way that his version of God, his version of the kingdom, came directly into conflict with what they thought faithful and holy living looked like. But you know, it wasn't just the religious leaders, was it? It was also the people that knew him best, his own hometown. In fact, his own family he saw had issues with Jesus. You know, they were okay with him being such a great guy growing up. But once he started to claim, really, messiahship, once he started to claim to be able to forgive sins and replace the temple, and once once he started to come against the religious leaders, once he started to appoint 12 apostles for crying out loud, once he started to do these kinds of things, even his own family began to reject him and say, he has gone crazy. He has lost his mind. But all through, Mark is showing us this Jesus is a king that we can trust with our lives. That we can follow this king. And so his identity has been unfolding for us. Now, uh, today we come to another one of these confrontations between Jesus and in particular the religious leadership. It is a super challenging passage of scripture. I started working on this sermon before my holidays for several weeks and then all this week and I will confess to you today that this has been a very big struggle to try to pull it all together and so today maybe a little bit differently than normal I want us together to do what would be more like a Bible study like let's walk through this passage together let's let's grapple with it together and if you have a Bible you can turn to it uh, in, in the Gospel of Mark if you're new to the Bible it's the second book in the New Testament, which is the second half of your Bible, or the Bible that you may be borrowing. But also, we printed off the passage today and put it in your bulletin. It's from today's New International Version, and it's Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 23. So if you want to follow along that way, we're just going to walk through um, this passage together and try to see how Jesus, through this confrontation with the religious leaders, is leading us right to the core of his kingdom spirituality. 
Well, as we dive into it, let me just pray again for us. Lord, we're thankful for this story that you inspired through Mark that gives us this beautiful window into the life of Jesus and that through this story, many have come to faith in you and that we can continue to come to know who you are through it. This morning, as we walk through Mark 7, I pray that you'd open up our eyes to see and our ears to hear what you are saying to us and that we would be responsive to you. Amen. Well, let's dive into it and walk through this. I'll try to tie it together, try to make some comments, but a little bit later, you'll have an opportunity to chime in as well as we have a bit of discussion time. So, so here it is. The Pharisees, remember those guys? They're kind of a holiness group within Israel, uh, quite well-known, uh, quite popular and quite influential, though they were never a large, large group. They were a group that stood for faithful, holy living, and they had issues with Jesus because he didn't seem to stand for the same type of holy living they thought he should. So the Pharisees and some teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled. That is unwashed. Now, I know what some of you are thinking right now. You're thinking, that's gross. You're right. I'd have issues with that too. I mean, if someone came in from working in the field, or worse, went to the bathroom and they came to my table, and I know they didn't wash their hands, I'd, I'd be upset too, you know? I'd say, come on, you know, wash your hands. They're defiled. Well, maybe I wouldn't use that language, but I'd I have issues, right? Okay, it's not, this is not a hygiene thing going on here. They don't know about germs, right? So we have issues with it, but we have a different type of issue. So we've got to set that aside for a moment and see that the issue that they're having is different. What we're getting a window into is something quite different than, than maybe our culture, though you may have been raised in a culture that was more sensitive to this, we're being given a window into a culture that's very concerned about purity and impurity. About what's clean and what gets defiled. And so we're, we're getting a window into it, and this passage uh, begins to touch on some of this. Remember, the, the Jewish people in particular have a lot of laws given around the issue of impurity, or clean and unclean. Lots of practices were laid out for them. What to do if you come into contact with, you know, a dead animal. Or what to do if you come into contact with someone who has a skin disease. Or what to do if you yourself have an issue of impurity. And they had all of these uh, details and, and sacrifices and practices that were all designed to help them move from a state of being unclean to a state of being clean. Because if you were unclean, you couldn't worship God. If you were unclean in certain ways, you couldn't participate in community life. It was a big deal. And so this is a purity culture. And it's really important to see that that's what's sitting behind this confrontation that the Pharisees have with Jesus. So they see the disciples, and they're chowing down over in the corner, and they haven't gone through the washing, the hand-washing ceremony. Now, just, the, just a side note here for a moment. Do you know that every time the disciples have gotten Jesus in trouble, it's because they've been eating? Yeah, look back in Mark. Every time they get Jesus in trouble, it's because they're eating something. I just think that's a window into the disciples, the life of the disciples. It's either that they were really hungry all the time from all the walking Jesus made them do, or they were just those kind of guys, you know? Whether it's walking through a grain field on a Sabbath day, which they're not supposed to work, but they decide, hey, let's pick some heads of grain and eat it, get in trouble for that one. Or the other time where everyone else that's holy is performing a religious fast, but not the disciples. They're over there chowing down in the corner. These guys don't like the way that Jesus' disciples eat. So here we are, the third time, 
that Jesus gets in trouble because of his disciples, and it has to do with the fact that this time, it's not just that they're eating, but they're slobs, you know? They're eating without washing their hands. They're eating in a way that just ah, makes me feel sick. Well, at least that's what the disciples, or the Pharisees, are thinking. So there you go. Now, Mark does this interesting thing. Notice the, notice the, uh, the parentheses that comes next. He gives us a little explanation. He says, uh, oh, by the way, the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, read uh, a place that could have been defiled, that could have rubbed, you never know who you're rubbing shoulders with in the marketplace, right? It could be some unholy guy, some unfaithful person, who, who knows? So whenever they come in from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and kettles, which we all, again, in our culture go, well, yeah, I try to wash my plates and cups too. But this is a different deal, right? This stands for, it's their way of saying, we've been defiled. We, we stand in a position of defilement. And maybe I came into contact with someone defiled. Maybe I don't even know. And so just as a way of saying, God, I want to be pure. The, the way of saying, God, I want to be holy. We go through this ceremony. That, that gets us right, that positions us correctly. And, and as, as Mark, he gives us this little window. It's actually a, a, an interesting little thing, this little bracket, because it tells us that the people who are reading the Gospel of Mark, when they received it, are kind of like you and me. They weren't so familiar with the Jewish culture. Like we were, they weren't so in tune with what exactly the Pharisees did and, and how they, because Mark has to explain it to them. And this has long been one of those passages that helps us see that Mark is written to probably Roman Christians, probably a primarily Gentile church who didn't, wouldn't have that inside information. And so Mark p- puts it in there for them so they understand a little bit of what's, what's going on. So you get the picture here? Okay, so the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to t- t- tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? You hear the question in that? Why aren't you training your disciples to live holy lives? That's the question they're asking. Because clearly, these disciples, kind of under the leadership of Jesus, are living in such a way that it's like they're just disregarding any sense of, of what it means to be faithful, what it means to be holy, what it means to be set apart. That's what's going on here. And they're saying, how come you don't, you know, enforce this stuff? Like, how come you aren't helping them? How come aren't, aren't, you aren't... Ex- Raise your standards, Jesus, please. How come you aren't insisting that they live according to these practices, these traditions that, that position us, that show to the world that we're faithful? Why don't you do that, Jesus? And, and Jesus, his response is very strong to them. In fact, it's, it, 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 it's very powerful. He, he says... He says these words. He he begins with this quote from Isaiah 29, which Al read for us. He said, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. Now, we're kind of familiar with the word hypocrites. The only time Mark uses it in his gospel, this word hypocrites. And it has to do with play acting. It's the word for an actor. It's like putting on a face. right? That's that's the origin of that word. He calls them hypocrites. He calls them play actors. He was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts 
are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. And then Jesus says, you have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. See what Jesus is doing there? He's pushing back against their action. He's saying, your traditions are enabling you to dodge obedience. That your way of practicing uh, religious life, your, your way actually, ironically, of holy living is actually enabling you to get around the clear command of Scripture. And then he moves on to one example of how they do this. It's kind of a strange example because it doesn't necessarily connect with us in the same way. But here's what he says. He says, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. And here's the example he uses. It has to do with parents. For Moses said, honor your father and mother. And, he quotes another place, he says, anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. Whoa, parents esteemed very highly. Care for them. Respect them. But you say, Jesus talking to the Pharisees, you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is korban, that is dedicated, devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father and mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And you do many things like that. The Pharisees are saying to Jesus, your lack of concern with the religious traditions demonstrates that you're unfaithful to God, right? That's essentially what they're saying. But Jesus pushes back and says, no, no, your addiction to religious traditions is making others unfaithful to God. And Jesus is saying, look, you can look religious, you can practice all the right stuff, you can cross all the T's and dot all the I's, you can look like the absolute perfect example of righteous living and still be dodging what is clearly commands from God in Scripture. And this example he gives of the way that they don't care for their aging parents is like, the parents might be impoverished, but sorry, Mom and Dad, I already dedicated all my money to God and I can't really help you. It's just an example that Jesus gives. A powerful personal equivalent for me would be a, a, a pastor who, in the, you know, for the sake of ministry, he doesn't take care of his own family. That's an example of you know, somehow building up in a person's mind, hey, this is what holiness or this is what uh, good, righteous life looks like, and then denying the very thing that God has given you responsibility for. Now, I want us to stop right there for a moment because I was thinking about this idea of a religious tradition that prevents us from being obedient or allows us to get off the hook. And I was thinking, the question we have to ask right here and right now is, how have we done that? Like, how have we done that? It's very easy to go to a passage like this and immediately begin to point at others, right? Who are somehow trapped in a religious tradition. But I have to ask, how have we done this? How have we allowed our religious tradition? Or you could even read, you know, just to make it helpful for you, because you think, well, I'm not a very big religious traditionalist. Think of it this way, the way I like things to be. That's what tradition is anyway, right? The way I like things, the way I'm comfortable, the way things should be because... We've always done it this way. Whatever. How have we allowed that practice to get in the way of our being obedient to God? That's a hard question. That's, that's one of the things I was wrestling with this week. A couple things came to my mind, but uh, you know, as, we, as I share some of these, um, be thinking through that question. How have we done this? 
One obvious one, it just kind of reads right off the pages, this practice of coming to church. That we could think, well, I'm living a holy Christian life because I, I come to church on Sunday mornings. But we could use that as an example of, hey, I went to church on Sunday, therefore I'm following Jesus, and as a result, not actually be taking the commands of Jesus to follow him in all of our life, our work, our family, our marriage, our, our relationships with our neighbors, the, the way that we treat our money, all of this stuff without, without regarding Jesus' straight-up word for us, that somehow we've punched our ticket on our Sunday morning and, and, and we're okay now. We could use that as a tradition to get around. But, but I think it can go further than that. Sometimes, and I'm just shooting this out here, okay? You can push back if you think I'm just way off. I was thinking about sometimes in an attempt to be faithful as Christians, we can isolate ourselves from people that are other than us. Right? In an attempt to be faithful, we can isolate ourselves from someone who's of a different religion, of a different ethnicity, who just thinks differently and lives differently than us. That, that somehow, subtly, in ways that maybe we wouldn't even put our finger on, we can think, no, I want to protect my family. No, I want to protect my faith. No, I want to be holy and faithful. And therefore, I somehow have isolated myself from the very people that Jesus has told us to love. The very people that Jesus has told us to share the good news about with them. Is that possible? That our version of being faithful could actually become a way that we get around being people who share the good news. Or maybe another, another one could be that as we pursued holiness in our lives and as, as we've let Jesus in and begin to make changes in our lives, you know, begin to straighten some things out. And we've confessed and we, we've let Jesus br- begin to do a process of healing in our lives. That uh, some time can pass on and we can forget the grace that we've experienced. We can forget the sin that we've been forgiven. And we can begin to create a culture or maybe a way of being that actually begins to be a judgmental perspective on those who have not experienced the grace of Jesus, who are struggling in life, who, are, who aren't sure what end is up. That in an attempt to pursue holiness, we can become people who are bigoted and judgmental and as a result aren't showing the grace of God. Maybe there's ways in which we like our traditions so much. And again, I'm thinking traditions can be anything where we say, I like it this way. I think this is the way it should be. I think this is the way it means you know, we should live and work and do church or whatever. I, I, I like it this way because I think this is the best way to be holy. Is it possible that we could do that in such a way that we end up making our church life together something irrelevant and unconnected to the world? Is it possible that we could, in an attempt to be faithful Christians, end up making our message about Jesus so incomprehensible because it's using insider language and Christian cliches and things that no one who isn't familiar with the church would understand? And so, again, as a result, creating a community that's not necessarily open, not necessarily welcoming and inviting. This can happen across the board. You know, I think it's easy when we look at a passage like this to begin to point at quote-unquote traditionalists like the religious Pharisees. But I actually think that for all of us, we could, we could say, you know what, because the church, because X church, because the Erickson Covenant church, doesn't do things the way I think they should be done, fill in the blank, I don't really want to serve there. You know, I might come, I might sit, I might nod, 
but really, I don't really want to serve. I don't, I don't really like the way things are going, or I, I don't really, I'm not really sure about the direction, or I, I'm just, I'm just going to come, and I'm going to kind of, you know, take my fill, but I don't really want to serve, because maybe it isn't quite what I like. And I think we could use that as a way of being disobedient. Holy Spirit's giving you gifts. Those gifts are given for one reason only, build up the church. It's the only reason he gave you gifts. The only reason the Spirit gave you gifts was to build up the church. So if we become part of this church or any church, and we just kind of sit back and we don't participate, we're allowing our religious tradition, the way we like things to be, to enable you to be disobedient. Whoa! I think it can be true, can be true. We have to ask that question. How have we allowed religious traditions, the way things should be or are likely to be, to get around obedience to God? Well, we'll come back to this in our discussion time. But let's push on for now to see what Jesus does, where he goes with this, okay? So he he pushes hard against these Pharisees. He gives them the example of them dodging obedience through their religious tradition. And then he calls the crowd to him. Because they're listening in, right? This is a public setting. They've confronted Jesus. Jesus has pushed back. But then he wants everyone to understand something important. So he calls the crowd around him. And this is what he says. Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Now, when Jesus says that, we should sit up and pay attention, right? Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside you can defile you by going into you. Rather, it is what comes out of you that defiles you. Jesus wants the whole crowd to hear this. In front of this very well-respected, uh, very influential religious group, known for their holy and faithful practices, right? The average Jew looks at these guys and goes, if only I could live like that. Jesus pushes back, calls them hypocrites, tells them they're dodging obedience to God through their practices, and then says these words, I'll read them again, nothing outside you can defile you by going into you. Rather, it's what comes out of you that defiles you. Now, I want to ask you a question. Is that clear? Is it a clear statement that Jesus is making here? What's, is there anything fuzzy about it? Nothing outside of you that comes into you can defile you. Only what is in you that comes out of you can defile you. It's a pretty clear pretty cut-and-dry statement that Jesus makes. Now, I want to ask you another question. Is there in any way that Jesus is giving a parable here? Does this sound like a parable to you? Remember the parables of Jesus? A man went out to sow some seed, right? Or, or uh, you know, a mustard seed. He likes the farmers. But if you think of all the different parables you've heard Jesus say, he uses fishing and he uses nets and he uses guys who find pearls in fields. He uses a lot of different things like that. Is there something in this that sounds like a parable to you? Nothing outside you that goes into you can defile you, but only what's inside you that comes out will defile you. Sound like a parable to you? Not really. Watch what happens next. After he left the crowd and entered the house, this is a common practice. We see this emerging through the Gospel of Mark that Jesus will say something to the crowd often in parables, actually always in parables, is what it says earlier in Mark. And then when he pulls his inner court back together, often in a house or somewhere private, here it is, back in Mark 7, his disciples asked him about this parable. Now, this always caught me because you think, what parable? 
Well, what parable is he talking about? What, what, what parable did Jesus just give them? I'm nothing outside you can defile you by going into your... Uh, what? I don't see a parable. Do you, do you see what's going on here? These disciples are so stunned with what Jesus says. In this purity culture, with all of their understanding of what it means to be defiled. I mean, a lot of what was written in the law about being defiled had to do with what? Stuff that goes into you. Right? And all of these laws that were written to prevent them from eating the wrong food, in particular. And Jesus says this, and they think, okay, I think, I, I mean, I heard what he said, but it must be a parable. It must be a parable because surely he doesn't actually mean what he just said he meant. You know, you know you've all had that experience with God, right? No, 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 he must be speaking in a parable to me because there's no way he'd be asking me to love her. There's no way he'd be asking me to forgive that guy. It must be a parable of some kind. It must be a metaphor. Jesus, what's the metaphor? And, and so they, they pull Jesus aside and go, oh, that was great, Jesus. I, I love the parable you shared out there. Now, could you give us the inside scoop on what that parable meant? <laughs> Jesus says, are you so dull? Are you so dull? He asked. And then he goes on to basically restate what he said. He expands it a little bit to help these dullards like you and I. He says, don't you see that nothing that enters from the outside can defile you? Just restates exactly what he said. And here's where he expands. For it doesn't go into your heart. You know, the hamburger doesn't go into your heart. Well, maybe the cholesterol does, but you know, we're not going to set that aside. The hamburger, you know, it doesn't go into your heart, but into your stomach. And then Jesus gives us a physics, you know, physiology lesson. Then out of your body. Into the sewer is what the original says. And then there's this second bracket that Mark uses to explain to the Roman Christians the real impact of this. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean, which is a fascinating statement because the Pharisees are coming to Jesus because his disciples are eating with unwashed hands. It's nothing to do with food, per se. I mean, it has nothing to do with what they were eating. What they would have been eating would have been kosher, for sure. But somehow Mark takes this and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and says, oh, by the way, when Jesus says that nothing that comes from outside you, into you, will make you unclean, he's talking about food. Which if you remember your history, you know that one of the primary challenges of the early church as this one people of God, Jew and Gentile coming together, had to do with food. Big, big deal. And if you read through Mark, you see food is almost always featured in a story We've already heard them, but it's featured far more than just the three uh, confrontations I, I mentioned. So here's this statement that Mark, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, explains. Oh, by the way, he declared all foods clean. And at a slight risk of going off track for a moment. I don't do this very often, but I feel it's important. Because you and I have friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, who think that to be a faithful Christian today, you should keep food laws. You know that. You've got friends like that. You've got bro- we've got brothers and sisters who think faithful following of Jesus means we should keep kosher in some way. And I'm saying you have to grapple with this passage. Jesus, when he said, nothing from outside you, going into you, can defile you. And then Mark, on the inspirational Holy Spirit, says, by the way, what Jesus did here is declare all foods clean. He declared all foods clean. Moving on. Jesus went on and said, What comes out of you is what defiles you. And here is where it gets hard. 
For from within, out of your hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile you. He says, you want to talk about purity? You want to talk about what's messing you up? You want to talk what's defiling your life? It's not whether you've washed your hands or not. It's not whether you've eaten a certain food or not. It's not about the practice of some tradition. It's about your heart. And when he says, he brings it right down, he says, you know what the heart of the problem is? The heart of the problem is a problem of the heart. And religious traditions, here's the crazy thing. Religious traditions can mask that over. Because what happens when people practice religion? Religion enables people, a couple couple things. One, some of us are good at it. Some of you, some of us are really good at doing the religious thing. And guess what? You can do the religious thing. You can be like the Pharisees. You can keep it all and think that somehow you've got it made. It can actually create pride in your heart where you say, I've got this thing. I'm a pretty holy guy. I'm pretty faithful. And it actually enables you to mask over the real need that you and I have for a heart transformation. Something that only Jesus can do, that religion can't do, in fact, will serve to your detriment. Will simply mask over the need in your heart. The other thing religion can do is some of us look at it and go, I can't do that. Like, I, I can't. I won't measure up. I'll fail. I'll fall. I'm no good. I look at these people who are just so pious and so beautiful and so holy and so perfect and I don't even have a chance. Like by tomorrow afternoon I will have messed up. So I might as well just give up now. I guess I can't follow Jesus if that's what it means to be faithful. And so I just, I just you know, kind of collapse into discouragement. And ultimately what religion does is it can, it can make us think that somehow following God, somehow being part of this kingdom that Jesus is talking about is about keeping up with some external things. You know, just, just, just say the right thing, dress the right way, uh, you know, kind of go to the right functions, kind of nod and smile when you're supposed to nod and smile and, and kind of look disapproving when you're supposed to look disapproving. And, and then you're okay. You're in. You've got it. And Jesus is saying, that won't do it. That won't solve the heart. You think that's messing you up? You think by, by keeping these practices, everything's going to be clean and pure when it's our hearts that are the problem? Now, in this passage, Jesus gives this stinging, stunning diagnosis of our condition and kind of leaves it hanging there. Mark leaves it hanging there for us. Where we hear Jesus say, you want to know the problem? The problem is your heart. Religion won't serve you. In fact, it'll harm you. Religion is very poisonous. It'll kill every time. The human condition, the issue that we need from God, is something that cuts so deep that cuts through the religion, that cuts through the, the, the things we think we need to do or don't do, that cuts right to the heart and says, look, you need a heart transformation. And without that, everything will go awry. There was a famous uh, writer in the, in, the, in the last century named G.K. Chesterton. He was a well-known writer for detective novels, and, and he was, he was well-known for some theology stuff. And he was just one of the big, the big writers in the early part of the last century. And uh, the, the London Times put out this uh, challenge to a variety of famous authors to write an essay on the question, what is wrong with the world? And these are mostly men at that point, some women, 
very, you know, these are writers, these are professional writers, these are people that write whole books on the subject. And he was no less of that, uh, certainly a reams of stuff, constantly publishing, writing all the time. He responded to this essay question, what is wrong with the world, with a very simple reply. Dear sirs, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. What is wrong with the world? I'm wrong with the world. That somehow it's so easy for us and religion reinforces that and politics reinforces that and sometimes our family values reinforce that or our prejudices reinforce that. It's so easy for us to locate the problem out there. When Jesus says, actually, the problem is in here. That the heart of the problem is a problem of the heart. And that we can mask over that with religious practices. We can act as though everything's okay when Jesus wants us just to own up to it, to confess that we actually can't do anything about this. That the religious practices we've been, we've been, we've been doing or, or not doing have, have somehow masked over the real need we have to have heart surgery, heart transformation, to let Jesus in to do a work in us that only he can do. What do you think? How does this challenge you? I mean, I think you can see from this passage, it's, it's challenging stuff. I wrestled through it, but I'd love to hear what you think. Maybe around the question, uh, you know, I, I, I thought about um, an organizing question, I guess, for a little bit of our discussion time would be this. How has religion masked obedience in your life or masked disobedience? How has the way that you have liked to do things become an excuse for getting around what God has called you to do? Is anyone brave enough to talk about this? Or maybe there's something else. Maybe you have a question or maybe you have a comment that relates to it. But let's spend a few moments talking about this. And Roger has a microphone and he's going to walk around so that uh, whatever you say can be heard by everyone who's here and also on the recording as well. What do you think? Over here, Roger, Val. Thank you. Um, I think one of the issues that um, I have found is um, the business of just one of them is um, reading our Bible and using it as an excuse to not deal with intimacy with God. If we if we just if we just know the words and we have the knowledge, then we don't have to deal with intimacy. That's a great. Thank you, Val. I agree. In fact, the Pharisees in another passage in John, Jesus said, you search the scriptures diligently because you think that by them you have eternal life. These scriptures point to me, but you refuse to come to me to have life, to receive life. The scriptures lead us into a relationship with Jesus or, or they're actually dangerous. Yeah. Other thoughts or comments? If you're willing to share personally, how is religion become a detriment to you and your obedience to Jesus. Nani. Um, I think doing what I think other people think 
I should do. Yeah. Does that mean who can who can who can agree with that? Who who knows what she's talking about? Oh yeah. You know, like not necessarily what I feel in my heart, but what other people are saying. This is what you should do, or this is what I would have done if I were you, and feeling like they're right and I'm wrong, even though I know in my heart that that's not what God's telling me to do. Does that make sense? Yep. Thank you, Melanie. Anyone else? John. I can just remember a sermon. This is back in the 60s, and I was in the States. Russell, this Russell was giving this talk, and uh, all he blamed was he'd always say, "Well, there's Armageddon and Satan, and Satan is the cause of all the problem." But really, it's it's us that that uh, bring this out because if we uh, know what is right and what is wrong. And we do right, that gets Satan out of the picture. But they uh, passes it on. It's always Satan's fault, mm-hmm. not yours. And uh, it's a very good excuse. And it's like you brought out in the heart. It's if our heart is repentant and true to God, then uh, Satan doesn't interfere. Thank you, John. We have an enemy. But you're absolutely right to use the enemy as an excuse when knowing that Jesus is offering us the real solution in that sense. Um, yeah, absolutely. Good. Anyone else want to share? Bryce. Uh, I just, I've been thinking a lot about this lately as I haven't been here much, but uh, it, it that God's really challenging the system. You know, he's one, he's confronted by the Pharisees who are, a, as you said, a small population of individuals. Um, but he's calling everyone in beyond that, and he's challenging that system and saying, this system is not working. It's, it's, I, I, I think it has us, it challenges me, this, is this system that we create, um, is it getting in our way? Um, you know, I've been thinking a lot about, you know, we've got how many churches in this valley, how many churches in, um, in in BC, in Canada, in North America, that are the same kind of system. Even though we we're all the individuals in those systems aren't necessarily issue, but it's a huge system that that I think Jesus is challenging. Yeah. Thanks, Bryce. And I think the challenge. I mean, it's. And the challenge, even I, I agree with you, Bryce, and you and I have talked about this. And it's what's what's challenging to me, and that's part of what I wrestled through this week, because I do think Jesus is more than willing to challenge the way we do things. And yet, what 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 I began to wrestle with as Jesus pushes on is, and yet if I simply said, and therefore the problem is those guys, or the problem is just that system. I could then step into being just as blind about the fact that Jesus is saying, I'm talking about your heart here. I'm talking about the need for you and I to have a heart transformation. And so, 
totally agreeing with you. I'm thinking there could be a way in which we could subtly begin to just play the blame game too and say, oh, it's, it's because of X, Y, and Z, and if we just did it this way, then, well, no, that would just be another tradition, or that could just be something else we use. Jesus is inviting us to get in close and let him work on our hearts. To somehow say, I'm a problem. I need Jesus. I need you to do a work in me. And some of those traditions, I mean, we, we acknowledge that, um, you know, we have traditions as human beings. We try to eat every day. I mean, there's, there's things about the way we do things that aren't negative. The challenge is, have they become something that prevents us from obedience? Something that enables us to get around what Jesus is calling us to do. And if that's the case, we need to take that bold, hard look and say, let's, let's move it out of here. But then there are other things that we do that can help us. As long as I think we keep our eyes open and saying, Jesus, we, ne- we need a heart transformation. We need you working right in the heart of us. And so that our way of being in community, for example, our way of being Christian brothers and sisters, isn't this surfacey, keep up the, you know, keep up the, um, keep up the appearances, yeah, keep up the religious tradition and not be people who look and speak of the heart with each other. Who are willing to say, like, how is your heart? What are you learning? Where are you growing? Where are you, where are you being challenged? That, that we can confess our inadequacy to each other and, and we can confess our sin to one another and we can grapple with the struggles that we have and, and not somehow be prevented from doing the real thing together because we've got something to prop up. I think that's what Jesus is calling us toward. The worship team has two more songs they're going to lead us in. And here's my hope. My hope is that as we sing, or maybe you want to just reflect on the words of these songs, they're really prayers that can take uh, the words of Jesus from this passage in Mark, and we can respond through them to Jesus. To say, Jesus, I maybe, maybe in my life I've been using my way of doing things, the way I like church to be, the way I like my life to be, I've been using them as something to get around the clear obedience, clear obedience to you. And I acknowledge that I have been using religion or I've been using the the way I like things to be or just my own personal preference. I've been using that to shield you from my life. And I don't want to do that. But I need you to do an inner work in me that we have an honest time of confession with the Lord and that we step out to be the kind of community that Jesus is calling us to be right here at the Erickson Covenant Church, an honest, transparent, confessing community that says we do not have it all together, but we don't want to be religious people. We want to be honest people. We want people who lean in. We want to be people who pursue Jesus together. We, want to, we don't want to be play actors, you know, holding up masks in front of our faces to shield from people the real thing that's going on inside of us. We just want to follow Jesus. And we want to let him into our lives. We want to be the kind of people that are stumbling forward in the grace of God. And so as the team comes and leads us, I'm going to, actually, I'm going to wait over here, and if you want to receive prayer, I'm open to that. But if you just want to sit and confess and and, and use this as a prayer time, offering your heart to God, that's for you to do.